Okay, that's it. For those of you listening on CD, I'm having to be everything this morning, being my own sound engineer. First thing I want to do is uh, to, I don't know if any of you have heard of uh, um, a book called Escape from Christendom by a man called Robert Burnell. Anybody ever heard of it? Uh, it's an allegory, a bit like uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. Absolutely amazing. Um, and I was looking through, uh, what's his name, Bob Mumford's Plum Lines, and he happened to have this, so I thought, we'll have that. And he's apparently tried to find, to trace the man, to, to ask if it was permissible to reprint this, but he says, attempts to contact the author for permission to reprint were unsuccessful. So these reprints are distributed without cost. Well, that was in 1995, and now they're finding they do have to charge for them. So this is... I just want to read the first chapter. Escape from Christendom. The first chapter is headed up, The Journey. In my dream, I see the lone figure of a man following a road. As the sun sets beneath the hills, a city comes into view. Nearing it, the traveller sees what appears to be a large group of churches. Spires and crosses pierce the skyline. His pace quickens. Is this his destination? He passes an imposing st structure, a neon sign flashing Cathedral of the Future. Farther on, a floodlit stadium supports a billboard boasting that 50,000 people crowd into evangelistic meetings there three nights a week. Beyond this, are modest, are modest New Testament chapels and Hebrew Christian synagogues which cluster together on the street front. Is this the city of God? I hear the traveller ask a woman at the information booth in Central Square. No, this is Christian city, she replies. But I thought this road led to the city of God, he exclaims with great disappointment. That's what we all thought when we arrived, she answers, her tone sympathetic. This road continues up the mountain, doesn't it? He asks. I wouldn't really know, she answers blankly. I watch the man turn away from her and trudge on up the mountain in the gathering darkness. Reaching the top, he stares out into the blackness. It looks as though there's nothing, absolutely nothing beyond. With a shudder, he retraces his steps into Christian City and takes a room at a hotel. Strangely unrefreshed, at dawn he rises and follows the road up the mountain again. In the brightening light of the sun he discovers that what seemed like a void the night before is actually a desert. Dry, hot, rolling sand as far as the eye can see. The road narrows to a path which rises over a dune and disappears. Can this trail lead to the city of God, he wonders aloud. It appears to be quite deserted and rarely travelled. Indecision slow in his steps, he again returns to Christian City and has lunch in a Christian restaurant. Over the music of a gospel record, I hear him ask the man at the next table, that path up the mountain where the desert begins, does it lead to the city of God? Don't be a fool, his neighbour replies quickly. Everyone who's ever taken that path has been lost, swallowed up by the desert. If you want God, there are plenty of good churches in this town. You should pick one and settle down. After leaving the restaurant, looking weary and confused, the traveller finds a spot under a tree and sits down. An ancient man approaches and begins pleading with him in urgent tones. 
If you stay here in Christian City, you'll wither away. You must take the path. I belong to the desert you saw earlier. I was sent here to encourage you to press on. You'll travel many miles, you'll be hot and thirsty, but angels will walk with you, and there will be springs of water along the way, and at your journey's end you will reach the city of God. You have never seen such beauty, and when you arrive the gates will be open for you, for you are expected. What you say sounds wonderful, the traveller replied, but I'm afraid I'd never survive the desert. I'm probably better off here in Christian City. The Ancient One smiles. Christian City is the place for those who want religion, but don't want to lose their lives. The desert is the territory of those whose hearts are so thirsty for God that they are willing to be lost in Him. My friend, when Peter brought his boat to land and forsook all and followed Jesus, he was being swallowed by the desert. When Matthew left his tax collecting and Paul his Phariseeism, they too were leaving a city much like this to pursue Jesus out over the dunes and be lost in God. So don't be afraid, many have gone before you. Then I see the traveller look away from the old man's burning eyes to the bustle of Christian city. He sees people hurrying hither and yon with their Bibles and shiny attache cases, looking like men and women who know their destiny but it's clear that they lack something which the old man with eyes like a prophet possesses. In my dream, I imagine the traveller turning things over in his mind. If I do go out there, how can I be sure that I will really be lost in God? In the Middle Ages, Christians tried to lose themselves in God by putting the world behind them and entering a monastery, and how disappointed many of them were to find that the world was still there. And the people here in Christian City who are preparing to go to some jungle or a neglected slum, maybe they're coming closer to what it means to be lost in God. But then a person can travel to the ends of the earth and not lose himself. The traveller turns again to see the old person starting up the road for the narrow path down to the desert's edge. Suddenly his decision mobilises him and he leaps to his feet, chasing after him. When he catches up, they exchange no words. The ancient man makes an abrupt turn to the right and guides him up still another slope which seems to, to steepen as it rises towards a peak shrouded in a luminous cloud. The climb upward is a very difficult one. The traveller appears dizzy and begins to stagger. His guide pauses and offers him a drink from a flask hanging over his shoulder. Panting, he drinks it in great gulps. No water has ever tasted sweeter than this, he says with great feeling. Thank you. Now look there. The old man points beyond them to a vista not nearly as monotonous and desolate as it seemed earlier. The desert below has taken on many colours and gradation. In the far distance a blazing light is throbbing and moving on the surface of the horizon like a living thing. There is the city of God. But before you reach it, you will have to pass through those four wildernesses you see. Directly below us is the wilderness of forgiveness. The traveller notices small, dim figures making their way slowly in the direction of the city, separated from each other by many miles. How can they survive the loneliness? asked the traveller. Wouldn't they benefit from travelling together? Well, they aren't really alone. Each one of them is accompanied by the forgiveness of God. 
they're being swallowed up by the desert of the Lord God's vast mercy. The Holy Spirit is saying to them as they travel, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, and they're made whole as they travel. Just beyond there's an expanse of blue. Is it sea? inquires the traveller. It looks like water, but it's a sea of sand. That's the wilderness of worship. Here, look through these glasses and you will see the people are walking there too. Notice how they begin to group themselves here. They are having their first taste of the joy of the city, worship. They are discovering how they were made for the worship of God. It's becoming their life, the white-hot source of everything they do. But don't people also worship back in Christian City? What's so special about that wilderness? Worship, that is true worship, can begin only when a life has been utterly abandoned to the desert of God's presence. Out there, the heart begins to worship the Father in spirit and truth. Looking beyond the blue wilderness to where the desert rises in red and fiery mountains, the old man explains to the traveller that among those reddish mountains is the wilderness of prayer. Passing through that wilderness, travellers find it necessary to turn away from every distraction and concentrate on prayer. They quickly learn there's no possible way for them to survive but by crying out to God continuously. By the time they reach the outer extremes of that wilderness, prayer is their consuming passion and their supreme joy. It appears at first that the city of God is just beyond the wilderness of prayer, but there's one more wilderness hidden by those mountains, which you will pass through before you reach your destination. It's simply called the harvest. You'll know it when you reach it. And beyond the harvest is the city itself. Your name is known there. Your arrival is awaited with eagerness. Come, let's begin our journey. Nightfall doesn't seem to be a particularly propitious time to begin a journey like this, he says. Don't go back to the Christian city, the old man exhorts, gazing at him earnestly. Not even at this hour. That way I could get a good night's sleep and start first thing in the morning, the traveller adds hopefully. But your rest is out there, he urges. Walk on now, into the desert. The Holy Spirit will help you. Don't be afraid to be lost in God. You'll find your life nowhere else. Right. So here we are. The Beatitudes Week 10. It's still headed up a king and his kingdom. And I think it will be now until we finish because I'm beginning to start going through the uh, Bob Mumford book just loosely because wherever the Lord leads me to look at it's interesting that I'm absolutely consumed at the moment between the difference between kingdom and church and that is what is going to come out I think at the next baton meeting there is a vast difference between kingdom and church and the freedom is in kingdom it's not in church um, it's not that, that there's anything wrong with church, but I've said so many times before, we have made church far too important. And it has become to us a king of Zion, so that we cannot see past the church and the leadership. And because of that, we've got wounded by it when things break up. Because the church is not fixed and eternal like the kingdom is. And so we've got to get our eyes on something different that is established and will never change, and that is the kingdom. 
So here we go. So we're finally getting around to it. And we had a look last week and the week before about how flexible or not we were with regard to changing our views on people and situations around us and how flex flexible flexible try how flexible we were about embracing the changes God requires of us. And we saw that flexible the definition is pliant, supple, agile, elastic and yielding, able to bend without breaking, able to be bend or be bent repeatedly without damage or injury, able to change or be changed according to circumstances. Inflexible, on the other hand, is brittle, stiff, hard, unbending, firm, rigid, firmly established and impossible to change, stiff and bendable only with difficulty. You can imagine when God starts to try and mould us and bend us if we're inflexible, who's going to feel pain? And we saw that from a cursory glance at these meanings, we may place ourselves in the flexible category. However, as we find out what Jesus considers true flexibility, we're sure that we may change our minds. A block of clay is unyielding, but with the pressure of wedging, it becomes soft, pliable and usable. God takes us hard, stiff and cold and begins to work on us. He takes us from one situation to another in order to work flexibility in us. Be square today and round tomorrow. And I just want to look for a moment at the parable of the wineskin and the patch on the garment. That's Matthew 5, 36. I want to look it up. And I'm did my study this time from the Amplified Bible. You know how suddenly a Bible will grip you uh, and I can't seem to get away from, from um, looking it up in the Amplified. I'm very blessed. I've got a system on my computer where while I'm typing I can go into the Bible and bring it up in whatever what's it I want and then cut and paste it across over to where I was. Saves having a Bible there. So Matthew 5.36 He told them a proverb also. No one puts a patch from a new garment on an old garment. If he does, he will both tear the new one and the patch from the new one will not match the old garment. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the fresh wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be ruined or destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins and no one after drinking old wine immediately desires new wine for he says the old is good or better. And Jesus is here saying I want to pour something new into you the wine of the kingdom but to do that you'll have to be flexible or the wineskin will burst and you will lose the wine. You see now why we looked at flexible or inflexible cannot pour the new wine into you if you're brittle, stiff, hard, unbending, firmly established, you can't get it. You've got to be pliable, so he has to make a new wineskin. He was talking to the religious leaders of the day, the ones who were asking him why his disciples weren't fasting. He makes the point that while the bridegroom is with them, they do not fast, but when he's gone, they will. 
He's saying to them, I can't pour the wine of the kingdom into you because you're too inflexible in your ways and your thinking. You can't make room for new concepts and you cannot recognize your king when you see him. You are hard and unyielding. They needed a new wineskin for what God was about to do in their time. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and asks, how can these things be? Without the new wineskin, they would never understand. So if you look now at the Gospel of John, verses 3 to 5, and Jesus is talking about the new birth and the new wineskin. And I think that through our Christian life we have to discard, we're a bit like a lobster or anything that sheds its skin. We have to shed off the old in order to grow. It can't stay the same because if we're growing, the anointing, it says in the Old Testament, breaks the yoke. And what that meant was that as you grow in strength spiritually, you bust the bonds that were holding you. You literally grow so strong that your musculature pops it off you. The anointing breaks the yoke. So we've got to be prepared to grow internally and shed off our skins and get a new one. The vulnerable place for anything is when it shed its new old skin and the new one's not quite ready for it to walk around in. Ask a lobster or a hermit crab who grows and has to go and find himself another shell big enough until he grows into that one. So Jesus says, I assure you most solemnly I tell you, this is John 3, 3 to 5, that unless a person is born again anew from above, he cannot ever see, know, be acquainted with and experience the kingdom of God, so he can't see it. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter his mother's womb again and be born? Jesus answered, I assure you most solemnly I tell you, unless a man is born of water and even the Spirit, he cannot ever enter the kingdom of God. See, enter. What is born of or from the flesh of the physical is physical, and what is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not, do not be surprised, astonished at my telling you, you must all be born anew from above. Jesus here is clearly stating that we are twice born. When we're born again, we're born from, we're born from below, the will of our earthly parents, born from above by the Spirit of God. So you've got this pull. You've got the pull from above and the pull from the earth and you're constantly in a conflict because there's always the pull against the above and the earthly. But he makes two points that we need to see and to enter the kingdom. Having seen it, we enter it by rebirth. This is, as far as I'm concerned, yet another scripture that says unequivocally you cannot lose your salvation because we are born anew of the Spirit from above and God does it. So what happens to us when Jesus comes to us with something completely new and says, Hey folks, this is me. I suspect that you and I are the same. Unless it fix, fits our box, we say, I rebuke you, Satan. Because we do not recognize that it is him. And a lot of what's going on in the church right now 
is being attributed to the enemy when it is actually God. The enemy's in there working, but God is doing something with his church. He's redefining it. He's making a new wineskin that will hold the kingdom, not the church. It's like looking at the wrong end of a telescope, looking at the church, it gets smaller. Turn the telescope the right way, you see the kingdom, and it's so totally different. So God is coming to us in these days in ways we never expected, and ways we don't understand, but it's him nevertheless. He's saying, new wineskin, have some wine. He's holding out to us something so exciting, so breathtaking, Eye hasn't seen or heard, but the Spirit has revealed it to us. Now you'll be wanting to flip to 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. hope I'm doing that now. Now, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10 then. But on the contrary, as the scripture says, what eye has not seen and ear has not heard and has not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared, made and keeps ready for those who love him, who hold him in affectionate reverence, promptly obeying him and gratefully recognising the benefits he has bestowed. And this scripture reference gives me Isaiah 64.4 and 65.17 that I'm going to go to in a minute. Yet to us, God has unveiled and revealed them by and through his Spirit. For the Holy Spirit searches diligently, exploring and examining everything, even sounding the profound and bottomless things of God, the divine counsels and things hidden and beyond man's scrutiny. For what person perceives, knows and understands what passes through a man's thoughts, except the man's own spirit within him? Just so no one dis just so no one discerns, comes to know and comprehend <clears throat> the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And then Isaiah 64.4, from which uh, Paul was probably quoting, For from of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, or has I seen a God besides you, who works and shows himself active on behalf of him who earnestly waits for him. Isaiah 65:17 For behold I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind Right now the church is in transition between the church age and the kingdom age This doesn't set aside the church which is the bride of Christ but the king is coming and bringing his kingdom rule with him coming ready or not, which is what he said to me at the end of 2006. As Bob Mumford says, the kingdom roars in like a lion. The kingdom crashes through history and tears things up. This is going to require a complete rethink in terms of how we've seen the church and ourselves and where we fit up to this present moment. If gentle Jesus, cheek and mild, if gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is changing into a warrior king and call, calling his bride to stand with him, there are going to have to be some changes made in our thinking. If we embrace the new wine of the kingdom, 
we have to be prepared to be made ready to hold the wine. In other words, the bride is prepared to prepare herself, to make herself ready for her coming bridegroom. This will involve changing a few mindsets. We may even stop doing some of the things we've been doing up until now. God never says, I will do a makeover on you. He says, I make all things new. It's interesting that you were asking if Sue had known me before I was born again. Well, she did. And she knows that what is here now is completely different <laughs> to the old. I'm not proud of it, but I was known as the office dragon. And as Sue said, if I said I wanted something, then it would be got. There wouldn't be any argument with it. That was that. So that's how I was. Arrogant, as Rudy said, strutting round the office. What happened when I was born again was that went. Almost overnight, didn't it? Because you noticed the change. Rudy said what's happened to me, didn't he? Mm, he did. Nothing to do with me, everything to do with him. New is not a makeover of the old. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any person is engrafted in Christ, the Messiah, he is a new creation, a new creature altogether. The old, previous, moral and spiritual condition has passed away. Behold, the fresh and new has come. Kingdom people learn to be mouldable, stretchable, pliable, to contain the new wine without bursting. How many garments the new patch has torn away? Church splits. Because God has done something and they can't recognise it or contain it. I've seen a fellowship with two men leading and neither of them giving way. The result is that it closed. That fellowship doesn't exist today. One used to say, God knows my heart. Sure does. Both wanted control. Both thought they were right. I know that one of them was the man that God placed there. The other one was a usurper. He thought he knew God's mind and he used his own strength to try to bring about what he perceived God wanted. But he was wrong, so very wrong, and he wouldn't be corrected by the word of the Lord which came to him. It was painful stuff. Lots of people got hurt. Inflexible wineskin. He was so sure he was right so sure so God's killing off a lot of our sacred cows right now mincing them up and making beef burgers of them smelling the cooking yum yum things are definitely not the way we thought what we believed last week has to make way for the revelation we are being given this week so the Sermon on the Mount is the instruction of the king to his subjects about how he wants them to live as his people. He says, This is no longer written on tablets of stone, but on fleshy tablets of the heart, your heart, if you will listen and apply my teaching. That is 2 Corinthians 3 3. You show and make obvious that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, not written with ink but the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. Jesus is saying, and Paul repeats it in his letter to the Corinthians, I'm showing you a different way of living, a different way of loving. 
in effect because I'm instructing you how to live from the heart and not by a set of rules. The kingdom is not now external, it's internal. The kingdom is within you. And by the way, don't worry folks, I'll give you someone who will help you put all this into practice. The Holy Spirit. Just wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power. And as Graham Cook says, it's better if I go because then he can come. And he's better at this next bit than I am. The Holy Spirit is the minister of the interior. He indwells us and his commission is to conform us to the image of Jesus. All he requires is our cooperation. He doesn't need our assistance, our good ideas, our efforts. All he needs is for us to make him Lord over our lives. Simple. Someone has said that where your will and God's will cross, that is your cross. Not a bad description because where your will and his will cross is where you have to step down. You have to give way. You have to yield. And Matthew 13, 11, interesting scripture this. I'll give you a chance to look it up if you want to. Matthew 13, 11. I hope that thing doesn't make any blinks or anything. I won't know what to do with it. He's replying to the um, disciples now because they're saying, why are, they, why are you speaking to them in parables? And he said to them, to you it has been given to know the secrets and mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. It has been given to us to know the result of the early disciples knowing the secrets and mysteries of the kingdom was that they became apostles, teachers, pastors, evangelists and prophets. They took his teaching and gave it to others. Suppose he says to you today, to you it has been given to know. What are you going to do with it? It requires a response. When you come to know that there's a different way of behaving, conducting yourself and influencing things, it requires a response from us. Kingdom living is exciting, challenging, consuming. You have purpose, dignity, destiny, focus, fulfilment in the presence and service of the King. No longer self-serving, you live to love and serve him, as it says in the Anglican Church. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You become a father pleaser, not a people pleaser. What a relief that will be to some of us. And Jesus said in John 5 verse 30, I'm able to do nothing from myself, independently of my own accord, but only as I'm taught by God and I get his orders. Even as I hear, I judge. I decide as I am bidden to decide. As the voice comes to me, so I make a decision. And my judgment is right, just, righteous. Because I do not seek or consult my own will. I have no desire to do what is pleasing to myself, my own aim, my own purpose. But only the will and pleasure of the Father who sent me. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 encapsulated 
So it's all about the king and his kingdom. Dr. Schofield had it right. You know, some of you know about the Schofield Bible, got brilliant notes on it. When he said that the Beatitudes were the rules for kingdom living, the problem is that he put them as coming into being when Jesus comes again. As I said before, his notes in the Schofield Bible are very useful, but on this one he was completely off base. These are the now words that Jesus is giving us and he gave to his disciples. Rules that will give us guidelines for behaviour, character and influence in this world. As I'm coming into something of an understanding of the difference between church and kingdom, I wonder how I didn't see it before. So was the way, isn't it? When God reveals something, you think, why couldn't I see it? The scope of the kingdom and kingdom living is so much greater than the scope of the church. And as I've studied the recent prophecies from Chris Larkin, I actually emailed her yesterday because it came home to me so clearly as you look at the three of them. One was changing the guard, which talked about uh, the changing focus of leadership. The next one was the two pathways about the, broad, the path where most people go or the path where you only heard the voice of the Lord and most latterly the dust bowl. I see how God is showing us that he's moving from one place to another. Changing the guard was all about global church but as I reread it it was actually talking about kingdom. As I reread the two pathways it was actually talking about the church and kingdom. And as I read Dust Bowl, it's God stirring us all up and shaking up and shaking out everything he didn't plant in preparation for his next move and the kingdom again is frequently mentioned. What we're currently seeing and learning will enable us to position ourselves properly in this move of God on the earth. One thing we do know, he is inexorably moving towards the wedding of his son to the bride. From Genesis to Revelation, he's been preparing a bride for his son. Then the wedding of the universe will take place. God has a plan and he's moving swiftly on to the next stage of it. And what we are sensing and feeling and living in is the result of the change, the new era, the move of God. Whenever God does anything, things are shaken and moved out of their comfortable places. There is what to us is chaos for a time until his order is revealed to us. Let's be sure in these days that we are in alignment with him in every area of our lives so that we are those wise virgins with oil in their lamps. Maranatha. God bless you. Thank you for listening. <laughs>